Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am joined by the design critic and curator, Vera Sacchetti. Vera is a graduate of SVA's Design Criticism Program and has written for publications like Design Observer, The Avery Review, and Metropolis. Her recent work, though, has revolved around curating, where she's one half of the curatorial initiative Foreign Legion and was the associate curator of the fourth Istanbul Biennial, whose theme was a school of schools and kind of interrogates and reflects on the state of design education. In our conversation, Vera and I talk about her move from designing to writing and our shared love of the site Design Observer and the influence that that had on our early education. We also talk about why she left her career to study criticism, her move to curating, and the process and thinking behind the Istanbul Biennial. Vera's passion is contagious, and I found this conversation just so delightful and inspiring. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I think of as the director's commentary for the podcast. Each month I share additional content, episode previews, and other essays and ideas related to the themes of the podcast. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Vera Sacchetti. second decret group or were you in the first yeah i was uh yeah class number two class number two class of 2011 we were batch number two and we were 11 and it was really really great because um it was just such a diverse group like so yeah. international and i i came from lisbon portugal right where i grew up and i and i uh I left when I was 25 and when I left, I, I left behind sort of a, let's say the start of a career as a graphic designer. Um, and I, and I kind of, I studied graphic design. I love graphic design. It's still my first passion mm-hmm. and first loves are very difficult to sort of forget. Um, and I worked then as a exhibition and book designer. So that okay. gave me a lot of interesting sort of insights. Um, just sort of like spatial matters, wayfinding issues, like how design and space come together and so on. And I was doing all these like super interesting books and I really had charmed life, it was great. But then <laughs> one day saw the Decret um, website and I just knew that I had to go and do that program. And it, it, the program hadn't even started. It was just like a, uh, yeah. like a, an ad, not an ad, but it was like a, like I think it was an article somewhere were kind of a, the the first website of Decret and the program haven't hadn't even, haven't hadn't even started. It was just like an announcement for yeah. what what it's going to be. And um and then what happened was I couldn't afford studying in the United States because I come from Europe where like universities right. are free. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't have to brag about it. No, no. I I don't mean it like right. way. I don't mean it like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. It's just—it was just shocking for me to understand how much people pay for higher education yeah. in the United States. It hadn't crossed my mind, or I knew it maybe, but I—it was when I was faced with the cost of tuition for a graduate program that mm-hmm. I was like, "It's not going to work out." It was a dream, but it's going to die. Um, fortunately, I got a scholarship, and um, and I was accepted in the program. So. I got to Decret with a Fulbright, which was very prestigious oh, nice. in the United States. Uh, nobody knows. Okay, nobody outside the United States knows what a Fulbright is. Nobody cares. But once you get to the U.S. with a Fulbright, people are like, "You're a genius." Right? I'm yeah. Like, I don't think so, but <laughs> but it's just like definitely is like a stamp in your face. It's like yeah. people are like, "Wow, you are amazing." But let me tell you. <laughs> um. If you are not American, it's not that difficult to get a Fulbright. Just putting it out there, <laughs> encouraging everyone. That the secret is out. Here. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and so there was a super diverse group of people. Um, and, uh, you know, from India, from Austria, from Portugal, from the U.S., a lot of people from the U.S., um, 
but really diverse also backgrounds, you know, people that right. came from, you know, English literature, journalism background, archaeology and architecture, uh, design, graphic design, uh, art history. So it was just like a really mixed bunch. I have to say, Alice Twemlow did a great job in putting this yeah. together. Yeah. It was a very good curation of a group there. And uh, yeah, it was uh, an amazing time. Completely changed my life and um, turned it turned my life upside down. I definitely. mean, that yeah, my sense of you and your career and in the research that I was doing, kind of preparing for this, that program seemed like a turning point in your career. And I guess, I guess what I'm curious about is what what was it about that program like seeing that being a designer having a career that you know seemed like it could have been fine what was it about this idea of design criticism this idea of of writing maybe and you were like yes that that's the thing that i want to do and then that you would go to a, a other country to to study it what can, can you talk a little bit more about kind of like what that was about or where those <laughs> interests came in yeah, well, I have to say, like, it started with um, my bachelor in graphic design. Um, I had a wonderful teacher, a man called Mario Mora, and he was my design criticism teacher. So we had a design criticism course. Oh, interesting. First he taught design history, and then he taught design criticism the year after. So what was what and, was that like? What was that class? Uh, what happened in that class? It was insane. It was insane. So he basically was like he was like this like super critical dude. He was quite young. It was, it was a time in that program. I studied in Porto. So okay. the second biggest city in Portugal. And it was a time at that program when a bunch of the older faculty members retired. So yeah. there was like a bunch of like young ish teachers that who were around 32, 33. So you had like a lot of like sort of fresh ideas coming into the program. And, uh, that professor was one of these okay. younger and he came with all these ideas and he got us all into like reading reading yeah, uh, for graphic, right. about graphic design and graphic design uh, criticism he got us into history of graphic design megs you know classic the classics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Miller and ellen lupton yep. reading all the stuff emigre yeah um reading you know and and, and reading design observer these were the years in which design observer yeah. had its its inception so you know Michael Beirut, Jessica Helper. We were reading all these people. I was reading all these people, and I was just like, "Oh my god, these are like, yeah, yeah, these yeah. are amazing, amazing people." And he just got us to think about what this professor of mine just got us to think about what we were doing um, in a critical way, which was completely new for me. And so I guess it started there, and I held on to some of these emigrant <laughs> issues as, yeah. as, as uh, you know, sort of sacred text. Um, I, I admired people like Ellen Lupton in a very unhealthy pretension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and Stephen Heller and Rick Pointer yeah, and yeah. all these people. They were just like my. I was such a fan, such a fan girl, and and these people were were insanely talented. They are insanely talented, and and they at those times, like this was the yeah. early two yeah. thousands, like late nineties, early two thousands. They just completely changed the landscape of graphic design criticism, let's say. Um, and I guess it was then that I understood the power of this thing. And, yeah. and, and, um, and it just stayed with me. And then when I was doing exhibitions and books, you know, and that was great, but I just wanted more. I wanted to do more than that. I wanted to think about why is it that we're making a book about this? Like, mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to be the person that stands at the end of the chain and sort of people just pass things on to him like so just make a nice layout and put this in there it's right great. right right you know, i worked in pretty amazing projects like i did museums from scratch like all the graphic identity plus wayfinding plus the editorials you know like all of that stuff and and that was like pretty amazing work for a graphic designer and and those those commissions were insanely amazing but i don't know what it was, but I guess somehow yeah. that had stayed with me for my bachelor's. When I started reading about Decret, it just sort of came back, and I just wanted to do that instead of instead of designing. I wanted to be um, reflecting about design, or, or, or yeah, thinking yeah. about design, or contributing to a critical understanding of of graphic design, and and 
mind you, at this point, I didn't, I didn't know anything or maybe something, but not that much about architecture, about product design even. Right. So Decrate was a fundamentally transformative experience in the sense that it opened my horizons up to so many things that I had very little clue uh, about, like urbanism, like architecture, like product design, like, yeah. So yeah. I came with the graphic design understanding and knowledge, um, you know, and then, you know, Stephen Heller was my professor. <laughs> it was like, right. It was like, Oh my God. And, and Ellen Lupton came in one time as a guest lecturer and I had this really awkward moment where I just said, Oh my God, you're the reason why I'm here. And just, <laughs> way like and I just realized I shouldn't have said that but uh -huh. it was just like it was like I, my dreams were coming true like attending this program yeah was every dream I've ever had was coming true and so that's why I mean but I did had I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out right. of there I thought that I was just going to do it and then go back to Lisbon and do design again I, oh, I thought yeah and then that just didn't happen and I didn't even I didn't even know how to write when yeah. I got to the yeah. program. You know what I mean? Like and writing also not in my mother tongue, right? So that's right. a whole different other thing. And yeah, and then two years later I, I was just a different person. I, and I and, and then again, you know, and then you know my, my dream my dream was to one day write for a design observer. Okay. Like that if you ask me like day one, yeah. start to what is your dream? My dream is to write for a design observer. And by the end of my uh, time at Decrit, I had interned for Julie Lasky at Change Observer. Right. And I had actually written for it. So, so it was like, okay, wow, amazing. Like everything I've ever wanted yeah. in life has been accomplished. So It's so amazing how similar we are. Like, like <laughs> everything you just said is almost exactly the same for me. So... Uh, I, I guess I'm a little bit younger than you are because I think uh, the Decrit program started, I think it was my second year of undergraduate, mm -hmm. uh, like 2008, 2000, like yeah. 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. But I had been reading Design Observer f since it began. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, just saw writing as part of what it meant to be a designer. I didn't realize that that was abnormal in any way and so then I like went to to undergrad having read you know these sites speak up and immigre mm -mm. and then realized that that's not what a graphic design not what every graphic designer does uh and was kind of thrown off a little bit and then you know I was like halfway through my undergrad program and saw decrit and that was the first time I heard the word design criticism or the the time the first time that that term suddenly made sense or realized that this was kind of like a separate thing. And so then that's kind of where that term and interest became a part of, of my life and my practice. And then I went to, I graduated and went working for a while, very much like you kind of was like, these are great projects. I'm doing really interesting work, but I also want to know why I'm doing these things and why these things exist. And so then I went to grad school by this time, decrit had kind of reformatted as a one yeah. year yeah. which which like i totally get but i i want if i was going to go back to school i wanted a an mfa and i wanted to spend two years and so i went to micah to study with ellen lupton who i had been reading for half of my life uh you know and then studied under her and that experience changed my life and now a couple years out of it i'm just starting to see the the effects and the things that I learned and was thinking about at that time, I feel like they're just starting to make sense now, kind of years later. And so everything you're saying is like, I totally know exactly what you're talking about. You know, it was just so, I have to say, you know, Alice and, and Stephen, like when they started that program, they were onto something like, and Alice had such an amazing roster of people mm -hmm. teaching and, yeah. and guest lecturing. Like she literally grabbed anyone who was anyone who passed by New York city. She was like, come and do like a lunchtime lecture for my students. And I have to say like, as with everything in life, I guess you only take out or get out right. whatever you put into it. Right. So, I like li lived and breathed that department. Like I was literally living there for like too long. And I, you know, we had this key and I was just like sitting there all the time and I would ask questions. I mean, 
and for me, you have to understand, like coming from a country where like it's a fundamentally fundamentally different way of thinking and mm. acting when you go to school. Like you're not, it's completely different from the American system. So all this like change in mindset that if you want something, you need to go and ask for it and get it mm. and like and work mm-hmm. for it. And people give you chances rather than just saying no to you on the go. Like this was like, I cannot explain how much of a change that was for yeah. me. Yeah. Like it's, it just completely changed my way of thinking, just completely opened up my eyes to so many things. And the other interesting thing is that, um, you know, then I, I, I suddenly knew so much about all these other parts of design that I right, hadn't right, considered right. before. And then what, what happened was, you know, and I, I wanted to stay in the States for, for a while because, you know, my, my, I wrote a thesis that was really successful at the time and I or it went really well and I you know and I, and I I made a lot of contacts I got to know a lot of people and I was really interested in pursuing that but visa issues mm-hmm. yeah. and, um, and so I, I I went back to Europe and when what was very interesting for me is that still in Europe there's so many people that don't have that attitude Mm. And that paved the way for me, or I paved the way for myself here. Right, right. With that attitude, like it's just a very different way of looking at things. And what I have to say is, like, the most amazing thing I got out of Decrypt was the fact that with that program, you found out your voice. You mm-hmm. you understood what is it that you want to add to this landscape. Like, it's not just about oh, this exhibition sucks or whatever, you know, it's, it's so much more about defining who you are yeah. as a critic. Like who, who are you? What are you interested in? What are you about? Like, and trying to use that voice once you've honed it, once yeah, you've yeah, yeah, it yeah. in the best possible way, like how, how can you contribute to the realm of design and all its sort of like vastness with your voice? And, yeah. and that's what I got out of Decret and, and, and that search is what I've been doing since I got out of there, I guess. Yeah. And it's it's taken me to pretty amazing places. But I, I, what I want to say is that it's still I'm still searching. Right. I, I don't know what I don't know yet. Right. You know? But right. what I've discovered so far is pretty cool. But I just I don't know yet. You you mentioned earlier that you thought. You know, you would kind of go to this program and then you would just go back to the same type of work you were doing. You'd just be a kind of designer again. I, I would love to kind of hear a little bit more about why that didn't happen necessarily. And and this kind of turn to, to the more critical, more writing side. Was that a kind of conscious decision? Was that, like you were saying, you just kind of saw an opportunity there and, and kind of went for it? And then hopefully related can you talk more about that kind of that that voice and that point of view and kind of what you discovered about your role as a critic in the program and also kind of the way you're thinking about it now i mean i feel like i feel like again like this professor i had in porto was like a very influential uh role model let's say and and he so he when he started when he was teaching us he started also having a blog and let's go mm. back to the early 2000s people did that like yeah. that was like a thing people yeah. like had blogs you know like they just wrote like things and they kind of threw it out there and no pictures right just like <laughs> literally just text right. right like just writing like 200 words you know and they mm-hmm. wrote and they, every day they would put something out and it was funny and you would follow these people and you know, there's no smartphones yet. Right. You know, like right. people are not like on Instagram yet. So it's, it's, so he was like doing that. He was writing. And so I, I thought that was so cool. Like he had something to say. So, you know, he put it out there and the internet was the great equalizer. Yeah, yeah. And, and everybody was like paying attention to each other. Everybody had on the blogspot.com address. <laughs> right. and <so> yeah. <laughs> and that was like a long time ago. Um, and you know, and I just thought, I guess what I thought is that I would learn more about writing and being a critic and, and understanding better how to like articulate my opinions about things and, and that I would be able to maybe do the same thing, like continue to be a graphic designer, but maybe on the side do some like blog. Right. I don't know. Right, like, right. I didn't really, I didn't think it through. I'm going to tell you this. Yeah. 
Um, but then what happened is that what I learned is that writing is as much of a craft as is designing. And mm -hmm. I then just became more interested in the craft of writing than in the craft of designing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I understood is that there is a dire <laughs> lack of voices <laughs> in the field and that everybody should be able to contribute to it. And, mm -hmm. it, it, and the fact that there are no voices just means that there should be a lot of voices. Because right, right. it's just, it's so refreshing, right? Isn't it nice when you talk to people and they don't have the same opinion that you do? <laughs> yeah. Like, isn't it nice to have like a variety of perspectives? The world is such a complex place. Like, why can't we just embrace the fact that we can all think differently about things, you know, within reason, right? Let's not go crazy, but let's talk about, I don't know, an exhibition right. Right. review or like a building or, you know, or a chair. And, and you can talk about those things and, and have a different opinion uh, about those things. Of course, what happened very quickly for me is that because I wrote a thesis that was a critique of social design initiatives um, mm. done by American designers in uh, so-called developing countries uh, yeah. in, the, in, the, in that period, like I very quickly became very much interested in social issues that are around design. And I also very quickly understood that graphic uh, graphic or any kind of design cannot be criticized or written about in a vacuum, but you, of course, have right. to deal with all the sort of political implications, social implications, cultural implications. And so, really, that was a great discovery for me because, you know, it's it's a way to become a cultural critic of the contemporary, at least for me, because that's my interest is the now. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that that could be an interesting way to go. And how were, was I going to do that? I, that? I was not sure, but... <laughs> Um, first, I just tried to get a job, and that was my first job after Decred. Um, was I went back to Portugal and I worked for a biennial of design as a communications person. So basically, mm. doing PR for the international press. And very soon after that, I got a job at Domus Magazine oh, in yeah. Milan. And then I became the web editor of uh, Domus Web for about a year and a half. And we. Um, you know, and there, you know, you have to turn out six articles a day. So that was kind of a, a good school for writing. You know, if you ever think you can't write, like, you know, that, that's what <laughs> you're really just yeah. you have to train every day. It's like drawing, like everything, you know, and, and, and so the writing definitely aspect of, of dedicating myself to writing, it became more and more important through that job as well, because writing for me is really a way to think, right? right. So I, yeah. a way to articulate my ideas. And, and it's a craft, like I, like I was just telling you, designing is a craft. So it's something that you have to practice every day. At least I have to, because otherwise I can't make sense of the world around me. So it's right. through writing that I can make sense of things that are around me. And what I discovered is that there are not that many people that know how to write. And I thought, Everyone knew how to write, and yet, more and more, I am surprised <laughs> by encountering uh, a world where I find that not that many people actually know, well, okay, know how to write. What does, what does that even mean, right? right. Um, I have to see that Decrypt trained us in a way that we always um, learned that you don't have to write about complex issues in really complicated right. words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? You can write plainly, but still talk about very complex things. And that probably is going to get you um, a bigger audience than if right. you just use jargon, right? So right. one thing is, who are you writing for, right? Um, and those issues uh, were very present at Decred, where we always were never considered um, part of the academia or the academic yeah. world, right? So we are very much in, in between, you know? Like, you could write a column for newspaper or you know i was writing mm -hmm. the web but i was really writing about a lot of pedestrian things like a lot of the time right really. right yeah um but that is great because you these kinds of issues if we continue talking about them in our little silos and like using all these like references that only we understand and like some sort of smirk at the fact that <laughs> oh you use that reference right. Huh? right only 10 other people in the world can get that you know that's just so sad, and we're just gonna we're gonna die, and get, you know we're gonna become extinguished like a species that cannot thrive, and therefore, um, for me, this pursuit of the trying to not uh, do that is very important. So trying to like 
open up the horizons, open up the conversation, invite more people into the table, bring more people, more voices to the table is, is so, so important and so fundamental. And It's interesting that, that you say that, though, because it's a very, to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's actually, I talked to, to Ellen Lupton about this a lot, because so much of her and Abbott's early writing was more on the academic side. And, and they, you know, really, Ellen, especially really kind of shifted away from that. And I, she and I talked about that when I was studying there. And, and when I interviewed her for this podcast, we talked about that. And she said, basically, the exact same thing you said is that she wanted to write in a more inclusive way in a way that could reach more people and was not done in a way that limited understanding or limited kind of who could read this and who could participate in the conversation. I mean, and that's definitely one of the ways to think about it. But at the on the other hand, you also have to think about it in a very selfish way. Like, do you want to survive? Do you want your profession to actually exist in five years? And stop writing like, like, like using like ten syllable words that nobody understands. Like, it's just not going to work out because, especially in the world where we live in today, where people are less and less spending time reading complicated things. Right. Like, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not talking about dumbing down. I'm not talking about dumbing right. down. Right. I'm talking about using plain words to talk about complex things, which, you know, as Ellen very rightfully said, allows you to include more people in the conversation and allows more voices to, you know, participate, which is what we want. Um, right. You know, we don't want this to like, this is already such a niche, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's one of my big interests. And it, it comes up on the podcast a lot is that there's a difference between writing for a a wide audience and dumbing something down. Um, and the type of writing that I'm interested in, both in reading and in writing myself and the types of people that I talk to, I think share a similar mm-hmm. interest is, is not in the dumbing down, but it is taking these complex issues, topics, subjects, ideas, and writing them in a way that the most people can understand them. So I'm, I'm a hundred percent, uh, on board with, with what you're saying. I'm curious, though, about this idea of writing also being a practice. And I'm, I'm curious if you think your design training and coming from a graphic design background influences how you think about writing and especially questions around audience and kind of how you communicate something clearly. The, I think these are very design questions also. Do you think that background influences how you think about writing? I have to say definitely because, and I also have to say that Decrit, if you think about who uh, came up with the program and structured it, yeah. they're all coming from a graphic design yeah. background. Yeah. And I feel like there's so many interesting graphic designers that go on to do so many like crazy things. Like I'm just thinking about, about Prem Krishnamurthy yeah. right now. Yeah. Just thinking yeah. about him, like he just popped into my mind. Like he's such an amazing guy. I mean, he's a graphic designer yeah. originally, but he's so much more than that nowadays and 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 you know i feel like there's a, a lot of of um a lot of things that you learned as a graphic designer that really at least me they really helped me in my in my um in my practice today i mean i feel like i wouldn't be able to pinpoint like it's not because you learn a certain kind of methodology or anything but it's right. just kind of analysis of communication and like this knowledge about what communicates what and how to communicate what um that really helps you know this like understanding of hierarchies of like visual communication is also very much uh, when applied to a completely different way Mm -hmm. of uh, yeah uh, working or or a completely different medium let's say is writing uh or words um it really comes in handy i have to say so definitely definitely and and I find that graphic designers also have kind of a weird fetish with words, like <laughs> most of the time. I don't mean it in a bad way. But, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's <laughs> definitely something that um that comes that comes with the with the trade, I would say. Yeah. Um, and that said, I have to say that um, I ha- I'm very sorry that I don't write about graphic design at all. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but it's you know first love yeah well i mean i actually think uh, i i was actually thinking about that recently about how so much of the early decrit group what it was much more graphic design focused than it is Mm -hmm. now and and 
not that that's a good or bad thing, but I think these these uh, silos and these definitions between different types of design are getting a lot blurrier. And I actually think that leads in nicely to the Istanbul Design Biennial, which mm-hmm. now hearing you talk about your interests and your backgrounds actually feels like it kind of is a, a culmination in a sense of all of these things you're talking about, kind of thinking about the contemporary, thinking about the kind of the the politics of design all kind of play a role yeah, in this. Ex- thinking about education and process, all of these things you're talking about actually kind of manifest themselves in this biennial. And so you were the a co-curator of the 2018, 2018? Yeah. So actually associate curator is the role uh, of the fourth Istanbul design biennial, which was, um, yeah, it was held last year from September to November, 2018. And you are totally right when you say that's a culmination because for me it was as well. Um, I have to say that, um, you know, after Dome was, I was lucky enough to start working, um, in a bunch of projects that were directly like following up on the interests that I had, mm-hmm. uh, developed while at Decred. So this idea of like exploring more sort of like social concerns around design, right. or political concerns around design and so on. And I, I was involved first in the 2014, um, design biennial in Ljubljana, okay. which was, uh, where I was a, an editor for the catalog and advising curator. And it was all, all of it was all about this idea of post-industrial design scenario in Europe and how can we understand better ways to collaborate and how can the discipline reinvent itself and how can the biennial reinvent itself and so mm-hmm. this whole exploration was a complete like follow-up of, of the concerns of my thesis so I was super happy to be able to work on that and then that was followed by a couple of other projects and that really came together in Istanbul so this obsession with the contemporary this obsession with understanding how can design change because um the whole idea around that biennial was that on the one hand, the design field, and I'm understanding it in its broadest sense, needs to change, right? right because right. it's a discipline that came out of the Industrial Revolution for the most part, um, when we talk about production, consumption, and so on. Um, and here I'm not talking about graphic design and sort of like Right. mechanization of print and so on but really like in this broadest idea of design as um a tool of the industrial revolution let's say but when we live in a world that is you know very quickly marching towards uh, i don't know our mass extinction and you know the end of industry as we know it we're, we're already experiencing it like how can this mm-hmm. discipline thrive and how can it continue and again it's a very selfish question because right. i want to continue writing about design and i want to continue yeah. doing about design, but will design be able to like actually survive? Um, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. And I think these exercises, both the Ljubljana Biennial and the Istanbul Design Biennial last year, they were exercises in trying to understand how can this discipline evolve and grow and change and become something else. And at the same time, they were also exercises in trying to understand what is a biennial and is it right, interesting right. as a format? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what I think is interesting, or at least kind of like personally interesting to me at least, uh, is so much of my research and energies have really shifted in the last couple of years to design education. I, I teach in both undergraduate and graduate level programs and really think a lot about what it means to teach graphic design specifically. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, we can just talk about design in 2019 and that the kind of design program that I went through now 10 years ago doesn't really make sense anymore uh and I I learned a lot of software that I have never used since and and even even thinking about the way I was taught design history and kind of the role of the designer feels very ancient already in just 10 years and so I think for the biennial you took a really interesting approach by kind of framing this these questions all through the lens of education and through the lens of school and so maybe to kind of set that up can you talk about talk about that kind of framework and how you arrived at that and then we can kind of talk about the ideas I have to say it was it was for me it was definitely like the most challenging and complex project that I've ever been involved in that said it was also one of the 
projects that made me grow the most. Um, and I'm super thankful for that. And um, I, I think that what, what the starting point was, you know, this idea of, you know, design post-industry scenario, how can the discipline change? But actually, instead of asking how can the discipline change, we really have to go to the root of the problem, which would be right. the education of the discipline, right? Because right. these were sort of the, the fundamental tenets of what is design, right? And and going back um, and sort of like starting digging uh, into design education, you very quickly, very quickly uh, come to the conclusion that, most of the schools teaching design education everywhere in the world are still following up on some sort of like slightly modified model based on what the Bauhaus yeah, was teaching a yeah, yeah. uh, hundred years ago. And that's great. We are in the centenary. Cent, cent, yep. centenary? Cent, um, centennial. Centennial. Right? Yeah. yeah. The centen <laughs> today, today, no, not today, this year, the Bauhaus programming is going to blow up, right? Yeah. It's, 100 years of Bauhaus, everybody's going insane. Everybody's like looking at it from whatever perspective yeah. they possibly can, which is great, but it's great because we should definitely question it and we should take this opportunity to change radically the whole design yes. education scenario yeah. of the world if we can. Because here we go, like <laughs> Germany, okay? Then, okay, there was Second World War, all the Bauhauslers went to the U.S., mm -hmm. therefore Bauhaus models comes <laughs> to the U.S. Uh, the Ulm School, um, people from the Ulm School then go to Brazil. Brazil then spreads the sort of Bauhaus virus all over South and Latin America. Um, even today in China, the first museums dedicated to collecting and presenting design are still starting by showing Bauhaus collection. Mm, oh, interesting. So this is work that, for example, Zara Arshad has um, talked about in, in a conference recently. I mean, it's super interesting research. Um, and we have to say, like, why is it that we're still looking back at this? And also, why are we looking at some sort of, like, digested, simplified, right. depoliticized history right of what exactly that is such a pity because if you go back to the beginning of the Bauhaus it was super critical super interesting super super transformative but now it's just commodified right you know we're just churning out right I mean and then that's one thing the other thing is of course sort of capitalist uh, undertone of this whole endeavor which is here we are we need to graduate you know students right. there's no more yeah. students failing because we need to sort of like keep our universities alive and so on um so what we understood is that this is very much there's so many things that are sort of wrong with the system. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, this biennial was not an effort in here's how you fix the school system or here's how you fix the design education system. Like that is not what we tried to do. We really tried to go outside of the school and then look at this idea of learning oh, and the educational method as an approach for the discipline. So can we use this as something that will allow the discipline to stay agile, to keep right. changing, shifting, adapting, learning from others, from the world, from the context, from anything really. And this idea of design as learning as an attitude mm -hmm. to sort of keep the discipline alive and to rethink and reshuffle how we think about all of those things. Um, and that was a challenge. So it's pretty abstract and pretty broad. Let's just <laughs> yeah. that way. So yeah, I mean, my next question, I'll just tell you, my next question is, okay, great. Uh, love that. How do you do that? How do you turn no, that into no. a series of exhibitions? <laughs> and so what did we do? We said, okay, this is our admittedly very ambitious goal. And by we, I mean the curatorial team, which was Jan Boulin, a Belgian curator, Nadine Bota, South African design critic and curator, and me. And we're just like, great, this is an immense tsunami, just like sort of like looking at us and how are we going to deal with this? So we decided to make it uh, on the one hand, uh, we had to do an open call because this biennial works uh, is an open call scenario. Oh, okay. So we defined this kind of like very broad framework and then people could apply and send their projects mm. and so on. And based on what we got, which was a lot of applications, we're not expecting so many. Um, so we had more oh, than 700 and we had this kind of meltdown where we had to go through all these in a month and try to make something out of uh, 
admittedly very good things that came mm-hmm. to, uh, our way, you know. Um, and so on the one hand, we tried to make it very specific to Istanbul because that's another issue that happens, I guess, with some biennials um, that you could have done it there, but you could also have done it kind of anywhere else. So they can just plonk themselves in right. whatever scenario, but whatever they're doing is not locally specific at all. So that for us was very important. And so we tried to look at um, projects that could, you know, grow or evolve by the fact that they were being done in Istanbul, or they could interact with the, the, the Turkish sort of uh, contexts, or they could sort of connect the Turkish context to other contexts, so projects that were talking about the Mediterranean, let's say, or mm. projects that were talking about a common history between Greece and Turkey, and so on. And so basically, we came... Um, uh, together and what we decided to do was to sh- to look for that attitude in everything that mm-hmm. came up. And so right. the sh- filter through which everything happened was this permanent attitude of questioning, of wanting to learn, of exchanging knowledge with you and with uh, with with you, like between the designers right. themselves and with others, um, and and to sort of like go on and move on like that. And so then the themes that came together were just so diverse because this attitude can be sort of like found in so many different things. And so it it was actually quite daunting at times, you know, but we, what we did is we decided to then when the projects were selected, um, we decided to sort of uh, group them together by theme. So what, what were they questioning? What were they exploring? I see. Yeah. And then we we had a variety of, of, of disciplines coming together. So you had people that were doing more digital, people doing more product, people doing more performance, people that were doing more research, people that are doing murals, people mm. that are doing, uh, you know, a floating house in the middle of the Bosphorus. So, but all of these projects come together via this sort of lens. But this was just one component because I told you already that we wanted to question this idea of what a biennial is. We didn't want to do this sort of static exhibition type thing. Right. So what we also tried to do was to try to make it something that can learn from itself in a way. So sort of evolves. And so we had on the one hand, we had an exhibition that was divided um, into uh, six different parts in six different venues that were connected by the corridors of our school, which were the streets of Istanbul. Um, and then we had several parts of the exhibition were evolving. So what you saw at the beginning of the banner was not what you saw at the end. Mm. So the installations changed, people interacted with them, things were going on, and they were right. making notes and, to, and, and you know, showing the evolution of things in the walls and so on. On the other hand, we had a very active public program, which was also a very sort of, uh, very much a first for the symbol designed by Inu, which is which is great. I mean, and then that way could bring in so many people more to come see the exhibition, interact with it, and at different levels as well. So you have workshops, you have talks, you had like, you know, guided tours and so on, but you also had kind of more experimental formats. And then they had something that they called the Academy Day, in which they invited people from schools all over Turkey and also abroad to come and present and work in the exhibition. So mm. in the exhibition spaces, we had what we called classroom spaces in which people could just oh, have wow. rest there. So you had people, for example, Nelly Ben Hayoun brought her University of the Underground and they were there doing a residency for one week. Inika Hans brought University of the Arts Berlin students, for example. Um, I love that. Eindhoven was also there. A lot of different schools in Turkey were also there using the space as, as, as spaces that were changing, you know, so they were modular, they could be reconfigured, they could and, and that I think you know, you can't. I can't say that the exhibition was the biennial. I think the right, biennial yeah. was the kind of effort that brought everyone together, by which people changed by interacting with it, that people learned by interacting with it in some way, by participating in a workshop, by doing a tour, by being there on residency, by that—that that was it, and that's how we see it. It was the sort of like massive coming together of a bunch of people to to sort of like create this very informal intangible network yeah um of uh, ecosystem really of people of place of things 
And what comes out of it for me is completely unknown. It was a test, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a conceptual exercise that was not conceptual at all. Yeah. But it, it's made all the more powerful because you don't know what the impact of this in the future is. So what happens is that maybe people met there and they're going to work together now. And maybe people got to know the work of somebody else and they were inspired. And maybe yeah. they took some ideas that they got there to their own practice. or So what I can tell you now is the legacy is on the one hand, um, the exhibition is going to travel and it's going to mm. open a sort of more condensed form uh, in May in um, in France at uh, Luma oh, nice. Art, which is a cultural campus in the south of France in Arles. And then later in the year, it's going to open at Z33 House for Contemporary Art in Belgium mm. in Hasselt. So we hope that the discussion is going to continue yeah. and it's going to continue hopefully to inspire people uh, in these different places. And we have a book which we published with Valise called Design is Learning, which is a reader that on the one hand talks a lot about um, what's happening with design education right now and also offers some sort of like possible future uh, right. analysis. right. Combined it's, with some of the attitudes of the participants uh, of the biennial itself. Yeah, it's interesting. Very early on in our conversation, you said you, you talked about how kind of writing was a way of thinking for you. And I feel like this also was a way of thinking and working through things. And I asked, um, I talked to Mimi Zeiger recently, and I mm. kind of asked her about the the move because she just did the US Pavilion for the yeah. Venice Biennale. I asked her about kind of moving from writing to curating or kind of like event organizing, if you kind of want to think about it in the, a very large sense. How what was that like for you of these are things you've been thinking about and kind of wrestling with and talking about through writing for so many years to kind of now wrestle with these ideas in a much larger context what was that like i mean i think you have to understand that you're going to lose control like there's no it's like it's a little yeah. bit like yeah um, i mean i cannot say that i know what the experience of conducting an orchestra is because i have no idea <laughs> um but i feel like everybody gets a score and then they either do it or they do, or they do whatever <laughs> i don't know maybe they're improvising you know and yeah. you're just trying to keep it all together but you can't and that's the beauty of it the thing that i have to say that i that i have loved more about all my experiences uh around curating is how much i am surprised by mm. everything that happens and how much i have to of course you need to control a bunch of things and you need to be on top of everything but not knowing especially in these kinds of processes, because if you're working mostly with contemporary practitioners, which we're doing, um, if you're working mostly with new commissions, which is what we were doing, if you're working mostly with a context that is new and people don't know each other, there is an amount of right. uncertainty that is, um, that is, that's going to happen. Yeah. And that's beautiful. But because that, um, is uh, definitely uh, one of the ways in which magic can happen. And I'm going to read you here a quote. There was like, when we did Bio 50, uh, so the Ljubljana Biennial in, um, in 2014, we also tested out a completely different way of working. So we had groups of designers working together for six months and then things had to come up. <laughs> <come, laughs> yeah. We weren't sure what was going to come out, if anything. Um, so the the risk factor is huge, right? Mm -hmm. But I think only if you have a huge amount of risk can you really try and do something that is in, innovative or try right, right, to right. be innovative. Because otherwise, it's just, I mean, you're just, you cannot change the molds if you don't test out other molds i would say like and 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 i think right. that's what we tried to do with Istanbul at a much much larger scale than what we did with uh yeah with liana and at the end of the day um what we observed is that there were a bunch of things that were unpredictable um and that there were a bunch of things that 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 we couldn't really um 
control at all. And I want to read you a quote of like a guy that wrote um, kind of an analysis piece about Ljubljana. He has this really interesting um, way of looking at it. In the end, he said, his name is Michael Kapler, and he wrote this in 2015, and he said, Bio50, which was the name of the biennial in Ljubljana, he said, Bio50 provides a palette of diverse design collaborations with many lessons learned. In particular, it has demonstrated how uncertainty, variety, and ambiguity can be used as conditions to seed communities of design practice. So in his view, basically, uncertainty, variety, ambiguity in a certain combination can create, let's say, a future yeah. for design. And yeah. I guess he just said in a very articulated way, um, we weren't really thinking about how we were going to talk about when it, when we did it, but I have to say that I feel that's what we tried to do. And I'm not sure that we have had any success because I think these things are complex and they take time and we will only be able to look back at it in 10 years and see or 15 years and see, but it's an attempt. And I have to say, I'm very thankful that these platforms trust these crazy ideas because I'm not sure sure that, that a lot of people would give space for these things to happen. I'm thankful these platforms or the platform, for example, the Istanbul Design Biennial and the Ljubljana Biennial before it gave us that platform and the opportunity to test those things out. What, uh, what are, what's on your mind now? Or like, what are the subjects that you're thinking about now? Well, um, so very recently I did something called a woman's work, which was a conference, um, organized with Matilda Krzykowski, um, who's also a curator, uh, and she's now in Chicago at the School of the Art Institute mm. as a guest professor. Um, we came together uh, a few years ago and started thinking about how could we <clears throat> talk about issues of um, women in design and, and the arts in general, and, and then we we started something we called Foreign Legion, which is mm. a, a moniker for a loose association uh, in which we come together and talk about issues of women and design. And so we organized a symposium in Dresden um, at the Museum of Applied, Applied Arts there uh, on the visibility of women, contemporary mm. women. Contemporary oh, women nice. So that was a very interesting uh, exercise, and we're definitely working more on that theme in the next uh, months uh, and in the next year, definitely. Um, so on the one hand, that. And on the other hand, um, with the Istanbul experience, one of the things that I did there was I was taking care of the public program and I've been doing public programming for a number of years now also with this passion project that I was telling you earlier uh, which is called TEOC the Edge of Knowledge series of lectures that I organize here in Basel Um, they take place in people's living rooms and you have to talk about something that you're passionate about and that you know a lot about but it cannot be your job Mm. so nothing that is related to your job. So this really forces people to go into their like passions that they kind of forgot about. And that's, that's, a, that's a super passion project and I love it so much. But what I understand is that through public programming and through event uh, creation and, and curating, you, you create these informal networks of people that they're so interesting and the, 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 the impact that they can have in yeah. the future, or the long term is, is very, very unstudied. And I find that this is something I really want to dedicate some time to doing, and especially in today's uh, political climate, uh, both in Europe and the United States, I find that connecting that to the idea of some sort of activism is something that really interests me. Yeah. And I want to try and understand how I can um, connect these two things in a more focused and structured way. And that's what I'm trying to dedicate my time to in the next couple of, well, let's say in the next 12 months. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's such a good idea. (laughs) Because, you know, like we all come together to talk about funny things, but could we also come together to talk about more serious? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, so on the one hand, these sort of issues of like, representation, visibility of women in design. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say maybe more feminist strand of thought. Yeah. And on the other hand, this more activist strand of thought. I feel like those are the things that I'm interested in. And I have to say, like, 
working on these issues of contemporary design to me, like bring me, they bring me closer and closer to this idea of design's not going to matter in the next 10 years if we don't do something about it. So um, we need to act uh, fast. We need to sort of figure out that we are very much responsible for the future of this field. And if we don't start doing things about it right now, there won't be a design field, but also there won't be a planet, by the way. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe we could all just, you know, we're just, frankly, we're just talking about human survival here. Yeah. You know, know, in the big picture, (laughs) this is what, what it is about. So I feel like if we don't start, you know, taking our responsibility i mean we are all part of the problem right so and part of the solution as well so let's let's uh to end on that sort of hopeful note um i feel like there's so much that can be done but people just have to understand that their responsibilities towards their field are not just in making a beautifully crafted chair and it it hasn't been like that for a while now but now it's becoming radically uh, and dramatically obvious yeah in in an attempt to not end this on a complete down <laughs> note, I have one final question. And this is a question that I used to end all of these conversations. And you've mentioned a couple people throughout the this conversation, but what are the books or who are the people or the critics or the writers that have really influenced you and, and how you think about all of this that we've been talking about today? Um... Oh, that's a good question. And I, I have to say there's got to be like some phases in my life, right? <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm going to start with my early inspirations. I have to say that the team that started Design Observer for me was, of course, you know, Jessica, William, Michael. They were, yeah, they are one of, you know, th- they were my first uh, inspirations. Stephen Heller, Ellen Lupton, and Jabot Miller, definitely. Um, yeah. The Emigrate team and... Every, anyone that wrote an emigre really um <laughs> yeah. it was just so good it was just so good it was such it just changed my life and and as it happens very often it's through reading that you completely change your worldview sometimes and um then at decret everyone that i encountered there you know from alice who was the chair of the program at the time to faculty uh, members julie lasky akiko bush uh, they were so i mean Palantinelli was also teaching yeah. there at the time. Alexander Lang, Harry Jacob. I mean, I could even go. I could go on for for days. And then, in, you know, in in my profession now, my practice now, I just I'm lucky to come across. You know, more than reading their books, like to have wonderful conversations mm-hmm. with extremely inspiring people. And I've worked now. Uh, well, first I was working with uh, under Joseph Grima at Domus, and okay, he is. Yeah huge inspiration and i've been lucky enough in the last five years to be working a lot with uh, jan bulen and he is an incredible inspiration and i learned so much from him so um right now i feel like more than reading and i mean i've been reading a lot of sort of crazy feminist and ecological (laughs) concerns prose which you know those are the things that concern me nowadays. But, um, you know, I find a lot of joy and inspiration working with people and talking with them. So, you know, just recently, you know, I've been working a lot with Matilda Krzykowski. She's also an amazing person. And, yeah, I mean, really, I'm so lucky and happy to sort of be able to encounter wonderful people on a daily basis and to learn so much from all of them. Um yeah, I I just don't know. Um, you know, it's like flying a plane. I'm not sure for how long we're going to be able to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. Stickly as a species. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, I'm not sure how long I will be able to have this amazing <laughs> life where I encounter amazing people on a daily basis. And I just hope that I can learn as much as I can while I still have the chance because I yeah every single day from so many crazily talented people so thank you and you no. <laughs> well no I mean that's I thank you because I was going to say I'm I'm completely with you on this idea of conversation and so much of the people who have influenced me have it's come through conversation and that's like 
totally what this podcast is about is a place for me to like I mentioned to you before we started recording is to just talk to people who are smarter than me about things that I'm thinking about. And so I'm so glad that you now get to be a part of, of this conversation too. I thought this was so fun and so interesting. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jared. It was great. This episode was recorded on February 7th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.